Well, let me encourage you, please, uh, to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, page 1139. 1139 is the uh, page number in the church Bibles. Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 1 to 2. And if you like these things, I've uh, given us a little uh, handout. You'll find those uh, in the uh, bits of paper that you were given on the way in, I trust. If you want to see where we're going this morning, then uh, do grab hold of that and you'll see uh, uh, where we are at each point. I'm going to start in a moment, but I do want to wish my mum a very happy birthday. Um, She's not often here on her birthday, but she is for one reason or another. And uh, mum, happy birthday to you. Uh, there she is in the red, so you can all go and wish her a happy birthday afterwards. Oh, well, dear idea. There we are. Thank you very much. This will be on the internet, so you should be getting birthday cards from all over the world, um, at least for next year. Now, January the 1st marked a moment, uh, a great moment for me. I went for a run. Uh, it wasn't spectacular. I ran about four and a half miles in 38 minutes. I won't be entering any record books, but it was a great milestone for me because by going for a run on January the 1st, 2008, I kept up last year's New Year's resolution for a whole year. I've not been since, but I did do it for a year, and I do plan to go in the next day or two and continue it. That's been a great incentive as I consider resolutions for 2008. Now, I don't know whether you're interested at all in resolutions. You might not bother with them, uh, but uh, anyway, it's been an incentive to me. Now, putting jogging into my routine is a good thing, but there is something that's far better and more valuable. Uh, No need to turn it up, but let me read for you uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Train yourself to be godly, says Paul to Timothy, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Yeah, physical training is some value. And at the moment, everybody's telling us to get fit and to lose weight and all those sorts of things that happen at the beginning of a new year. Well, that's a good thing to do. My body is a gift from God and the one I have, unspectacular as it is, is the only one I'll ever have. And so I should keep it in shape and look after it. But did you hear those words in 1 Timothy 4? Keeping my body fit is valuable, but uh, keeping myself, my soul fit, being godly, is invaluable. Uh, It is uh, the most important thing in the world. And that's what the Bible's emphasis then is at the beginning of a new year, as we think of New Year's resolutions. Be godly, because godliness is valuable for all things. Valuable for every situation in life, in wealth and in plenty, in marriage and in singleness, in sickness and in health, in employment and in retirement, in sorrow and in joy. Godliness is valuable for this life and the next, we read here. Now, I think I feel that especially keenly as we had a call on New Year's Eve to tell us that Caroline's dad had very suddenly and quite out of the blue died. Uh, He did keep himself fit, but he was 82, and no matter how fit we are, there will come a day when this body will wear out, and his did on New Year's Eve. But Caroline's dad was a Christian man, and that's valuable for this life and the next And we feel that more acutely now than we have done for a long time, as we know that ultimately everything is fine with him. So while the world tells us at this time of the year to get in shape physically, and that's a good thing to do, and the Bible says it's a good thing to do as well, a great New Year's resolution would be, not only that, but to be godly. Or as Romans 12 urges us, to be a consistent worshipper. That's what we'll be looking at uh, over these next few Sunday mornings. 
uh, Romans chapter 12 and 13, uh, will tell us to be a consistent worshipper. Have a look at chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. To offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. That's what Romans 12 tells us to do. Uh, That's uh, what I'm going to lay out for us as our collective New Year's resolution for 2008. Now, Now, you may not be into New Year's resolutions, but go with me. Collectively, Christchurch forward. This is our New Year's resolution. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. To lay down our lives, our bodies, as living sacrifices to the Lord. Now, as we work through Romans chapter 12 and 13, we'll see that being a consistent worshipper, as I've used that phrase, is remarkably practical stuff. It will transform our church, motivating us, if you look at verse 5, to serve one another. Verse 9, to love one another. Verse 11, to be zealous. Verse 12, to be joyful. Verse 13, to be hospitable. And it will transform our world, or at least the way we live in the world, telling us, verse 14, to bless those who persecute us. Verse 16, to associate with the lowly. Verse 19, not to take revenge. And when in a few weeks we turn to chapter 13, we'll see how we should live in society. You see, being a consistent worshipper is not primarily about what we do at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Of course, what we do when we meet here on Sunday will be a small part of it. But worship in the New Testament is so much more than our collective gathering. To worship, chapter 12, verse 1, means offering our bodies as living sacrifices, laying down our whole lives in the service of our God. I uh, caught uh, 10 minutes of the BBC breakfast programme last week and one of their guests was a motivational speaker. He was giving tips on how to keep New Year's resolutions to lose weight or quit smoking or to get fit or whatever it is. And he gave some excellent advice about setting realistic goals, about taking it one day at a time, about being motivated, about finding an exercise partner, all that sort of stuff. Now the first two verses of Romans chapter 12, it seems to me, are the steps to becoming a consistent worshipper. In the weeks to come we will hear a lot of practical advice, a lot of things we ought to do. But we should not go to those verses until we've got chapter 12 in place. These are the steps to putting the other things in in place. Well, the first thing that we see, if you're following the handout, is be motivated by the gospel, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Living the Christian life wholeheartedly and consistently is tough. And we'll see that over the next few weeks as we look at the challenges of Romans 12 and 13. They are tough challenges. There will be times when we'll wake up in the morning and we'll just not be bothered. That is life, isn't it? Ever feel like that? Of course you do. There are times when I wake up in the morning and I just don't want to go for a run. In fact, that's almost every time. There's never a time when I do. And there are times when I just don't want to be godly. When I wake up in the morning and I want to slip back into being selfish and self-indulgent having a lazy attitude to life that is all about me and satisfying my own selfish desires. Now, that's, that's, of course that's how you feel sometimes as a Christian, isn't it? It's life. Which is why these opening words in chapter 12 are so important. See, verse 1 gives us the motivation for Christian living. 
And you see it there, it is God's mercy. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, or literally, God's mercies, plural. God's mercies are the motivation for the Christian life. Now, what are those mercies? Well, Paul has spent the first 11 chapters of this letter laying them out. The mercies of the gospel, the mercy of a righteous God who rather than condemn us miserable sinners to eternity in hell, sent his own dear son to suffer hell on a cross. And that's what we'll be remembering later on in the service as we take bread and wine. The great mercies of the living God. We don't deserve his rescue. We deserve his punishment. And that is a message we do need to keep hearing because the world around us will tell us quite the opposite. We are bombarded by adverts on television. Well, less and less I am because I don't really want to watch television. Isn't it hopeless these days? You know, Saturday night, mum and dad were here, Saturday night television, isn't it rubbish? Christmas television, wasn't it terrible? We hardly had it on over Christmas. What a relief that was. But look, if you do watch the television, then you'll see these adverts and they will bombard you telling you how fantastic you are. L'Oreal tells you to pamper yourself with their products because you're worth it. Thompson Holidays, the number one tour operator in Britain, tells you to look after number one by letting number one look after you. You're number one. You're the most important person. Let us look after you because you're so important. Booper tells us to take care of our health by taking out their health insurance, of course, because you're amazing. You're worth it, you're number one, you're amazing. Now you see, if I believe all that rubbish, then the gospel will make no sense to me whatsoever. It will have no impact on me. If I am so fantastic, then is it any wonder that God rescued me? Of course he rescued me, because I'm amazing. I'm number one. I'm worth it. The gospel says quite the opposite. I don't deserve anything. I'm not amazing or worth it. I'm an unworthy sinner who has shaken my fist in the face of God repeatedly and continue to do so, even as a Christian. Yet God rescued me anyway. Now that's amazing grace. That's mercy. Oh, Anglicans have always believed this, actually. Listen to the uh, prayer of confession in the old prayer book. It's a fantastic prayer. And just listen to the richness of the language and the depth of our sin that the writer understood. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness, which we from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word and deed against thy divine majesty, provoking most justly thy wrath and indignation against us. We do earnestly repent, well do we? and are heartily sorry for these our misdoings, are we? The remembrance of them is grievous unto us, are they? The burden of them is intolerable, not very often. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father. See, we are terrible sinners. And when we realise that, we have to throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. And in his great mercy, he has saved us through the death of his own dear son on a cross. That's what makes the gospel amazing. And you see, the mercy of God is the motivation for Christian living. The Bible doesn't just give us rules to live by. 
It motivates us to live a way to live. There's no point doing Romans 12 and 13 until we've got Romans 12, 1 and 2 in place. Listen to John Calvin. Men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy. Listen to Charles Wesley. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. God's mercy. That is the motivation for living the Christian life. Question at the beginning of 2008. Are you gripped by the mercies of God? If not, you will never live the Christian life as you should. A Christian life that is based on anything other than the mercies of God is sub-Christian. So what is your motivation at the start of this new year? Is it the mercies of God? What is your Christian life built on? The fear of judgment or a guilty conscience or a desire for acceptance or, or personal achievement or duty or pleasing your family or anything? If it is anything other than the mercy of God, then it is a sub-Christian life. The genuine Christian life flows out of being overwhelmed by the mercy of God, flowing from a grateful heart. Christian life is not about rules and regulations. It's about overwhelming thanks that he has done so much for us, saying, then I'll offer my life back to you. And that's why it's so desperately sad to meet Christians who, as the years pass, no longer delight to hear of Christ's death. Indeed, as I spoke of the rescue just now, they glazed over. Oh, they've heard all that before. Yeah, that's the gospel bit. No, we've heard that. We want something new. We want to graduate to something sophisticated, something, something more spiritual, as they might put it. Well, look, we never, ever move on from the cross of Christ if we're going to live the Christian life as we should. It's no coincidence that the one religious act, if I can call it that, the one religious act that we are commanded to continue to remember and to repeat is the taking of bread and wine. Because the cross is central. Because I'm never to forget the cross. I'm never to move on from the cross. It's at the cross that we meet the mercies of God as he sends his son to die for undeserving sinners. And so, later on in the service, as we kneel before the rail and as we take bread and wine, let me ask you, will you think about how unworthy you are and yet he loves you anyway? And that will motivate you to live as you should. In fact, that's the only thing that will motivate us to be consistent worshippers. One, be motivated by the gospel. Second, be consistent in your lifestyle. Verse 1 again. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Uh, You might notice Paul uses the language of the temple here. These words that are here, do you see them? Offer, sacrifice, holy, pleasing. They are all technical words from the Old Testament sacrificial system. Technical, that doesn't mean that you can't understand them. They're not difficult to understand. But they are still technical words from the Old Testament sacrificial system. In the language of the temple, the obedient Jew would offer a lamb as a sacrifice, 
a lamb that is holy, that means without blemish, a perfect lamb, and that is what pleases God. And that's the sort of language he's using here. Now, as we come to the New Testament, we're told, don't bring a sacrifice, but be one. Verse 1, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. There were two types of sacrifices in the Old Testament. Uh, There was the guilt offering, a sacrifice that acted as a substitute, taking the penalty for our sin. Those sacrifices were always pointing to Jesus. The one perfect sacrifice, our substitute, dying in our place. And and that's what we'll be remembering in just a moment when we take bread and wine. But the second type of sacrifice was the thank offering, where the people would, would freely offer an unblemished animal to God just to thank him for his kindness. Not because of any guilt necessarily in their lives, but to acknowledge God has been good to us. And therefore we want to give him something. Now that's what Paul's picking up here. That is what we are to be, a thank offering. I had a a letter from one of our godchildren yesterday saying thank you for the HMV vouchers that we sent him. It was nice of him to send us a a thank you letter. It wasn't, you know, we didn't give him much, but he bothered to write a thank you letter. Our lives, this says, should be a thank you letter back to God because of all that he's given to us. In view of God's mercy, verse 1, we're to give our lives in thanks to God. End of verse 1, this is your spiritual, or or better if you look down at the footnote, your reasonable act of worship. See, there is only one reasonable response to the gospel, and that is to give our whole lives to God. That's the point of the phrase there in verse 1, to offer your bodies, your whole self, the, the whole of life. That's worship. See, when we properly understand the New Testament, we realise that what we do when we gather at 11 o'clock on a Sunday is only a tiny part of what it means to worship God. The harm that has been done from supposing that worship is church-going and church-going is worship, and that if I attend church, I've fulfilled my obligation to worship God. Of course, the world knows how ridiculous that is. That's why the world mocks us when when they see someone worshipping God on a Sunday morning and then living Monday to Saturday, a life that is totally inconsistent with that. No, we mustn't fool ourselves into thinking that an hour on a Sunday morning at church is in some way an acceptable offering. In view of God's mercy, the only reasonable response is to offer our bodies our whole lives and anything less than that is actually unreasonable. That's the point. Now look, I know here at Fullwood it has been said consistently down through the years that we're not just to be Sunday Christians. And while the Christian life of some here involves little more than turning up on a Sunday, I know that the majority would agree to being, as we say these days, Christians 24-7. But I was struck by the words of a former colleague of mine. She would often say, human beings have an extraordinary ability to compartmentalise life. That, of course, is why Christians, committed Christians, real Christian people, can do such silly things. Why they don't always live the Christian life in every part of their lives. Oh, we know we're not meant to be Sunday Christians. If we've really been gripped by the mercies of God, we know the only reasonable response is for the gospel to affect the whole of our lives. But we do have this extraordinary ability to compartmentalise life, don't we? and to keep some areas of life as no-go areas for Christ. 
Uh, just the other week, a friend was telling me how some years ago, in a, in a different church completely, um, he did some work for a member of the congregation, and uh, when he finished the work, the congregation member said, let me pay you in cash so we can avoid the VAT, shall we? They're just compartmentalising. I'm not going to let God impinge on my, uh, on my finances. I led a weekend away for another church on, on being a, a Christian at work. Another church, a long time ago. And one man came up to me halfway through the, the weekend. I, was, I think it was very brave to say this. He was a PCC member of the church. He was a home group member of the church. He was a, it was a Bible-believing church. He had a real testimony about becoming a Christian. And he told me that he'd worked in the same office for 30 years and no one knew he was a Christian. See, compartmentalising that part of life. No, Jesus isn't going to be affecting my career. Real born-again Christian people have an extraordinary ability to compartmentalise life, to have no-go areas. Now look, at the beginning of 2008, this verse asks us, where are your no-go areas? Where is it that you and I are not offering our bodies as living sacrifices? Where is it? Career, sexuality, money, leisure, family, holidays, friendships, intellect? What's the no-go area? As one wag said, the problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. You see, this says, where is it that you're crawling off the altar? Where is it that you're refusing to be obedient? To be a consistent worshipper will mean giving my whole life to God. And over the next weeks, we'll see how that will work out with each other, with unbelievers and in society. Be motivated by the gospel. Be consistent in your lifestyle. Third, be supported by other Christians over the page if you're still following on the, uh, on the uh, handout. Be supported by other Christians. See, this is a small point, and yet actually as I thought about it, it becomes a very big point for us if we're going to think about doing this. Uh, notice that the language here in verse 1 is plural. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, that must be talking to all of us because I only have one body. And so if, I'm going to, if we're going to offer our bodies, it must be talking to us all together. Paul is not expecting us to do this on our own. That's a great encouragement. He's not writing to individual Christians, but to a church family. And so collectively, as we hear this this morning, we should say, let's be in it together. Does that spur you on if you know that others are going to do it as well, not just you? The motivational speaker on Breakfast TV the other morning made exactly this point. If you're trying to get fit, then go to the gym with others. They'll keep you up to the mark. You'll feel a bit of a chump if you don't go and you stay in bed when they're getting up, you see. It's true in the Christian life, isn't it? I know it's true for me. I need the encouragement of others if I'm going to be a consistent worshipper. Uh, knowing that I'm not the only one trying to do this, when I'm on my own, but knowing that there's, there's another hundreds of people from Christchurch forward attempting to live this really spurs me on. Doesn't it do the same for you? Because there are times when I think I'm the only one. I just forget. We are meant to make this sacrifice together. Our bodies, plural. Plural. So let me ask you, as you head into 2008, are you part of a group that will encourage you? You could form a prayer triplet. I know there are many prayer triplets that happen informally all over this church family. It's wonderful. Three people, obviously, triplet. Oh, you can make it a quadruplet or whatever it is if you like, but three people meeting together to pray. 
to encourage each other, to keep each other up to the mark. Or join the men's prayer meeting on a Thursday morning before work. Or or the women's Bible study groups on Tuesday or Wednesday mornings. Or or one of our small groups that meet in the evenings. And if you're not sure how to join those groups, then just uh, fill in one of these cards. You'll see them at the end of the rows. Uh, Put your name and address on there and tick small groups. And we'll make sure one of us, Andrew or Ed or I, will come back to you and we'll make sure you're slotted into a group to encourage you to be a living sacrifice with others. Let me encourage you to come to the the monthly prayer meeting. It's growing. We had about 160 there at the last month. So in the last uh, couple of years we've seen steady growth to that prayer prayer meeting. But, But a church our side should have really more people going to the church family prayer meeting. And let me say to you, let me be honest with you. Well, of course, I'm being honest the whole time, but let me say this. Regularly, when it comes to praying with the uh, the church family prayer meeting, I think to myself, oh, an hour and a half of prayer. Just sounds hard work. Eight till 9.30. Only once a month, but my heart sinks. When I come away, I'm skipping back up the road like a little newborn lamb, thrilled and excited. It spurs me on to live the Christian life. We've been praying together. It's fantastic. Why don't you come and do that with us? It will help us collectively to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And then when we meet in this large gathering after church, uh, over coffee, let's talk about the things we're doing, the things that we've learned, how the Bible has excited us and challenged us. Let's be honest about the struggles that we're having. Let's sacrifice together. Be motivated by the gospel, be consistent in your lifestyle, be supported by other Christians and fourth and lastly, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see it there in verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Habits are remarkably difficult to break. Good habits are very difficult to form Bad habits are remarkably difficult to break. And addictive habits are even harder. Many people will know the power of addictive habits right now as they're battling with them at the start of this new year. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if many people, even though it's only the 6th of January, will already have given up trying to give up on an addictive habit. It's a struggle. But listen, there is one addictive habit that every Christian must be on a lifetime's quest to break. And that is the habit of conforming to the pattern of this world. We must live in the world. We want to be getting our hands dirty in the world. But this world has a terrible pattern to it. And you and I, partly because we live in the world and partly because we're part of the world and just sinful people, will be tempted all the time to be in the pattern of this world. And we must battle against that. The pattern of this world is a pattern that like a whirlpool drags us down, down, down. With remarkable force, it drags us down and away from the living God. Now, we don't have to guess what this pattern, the pattern of this world is. We don't have to look at this verse and think, I wonder what he means by that. Whenever we read something in the Bible, the Bible tells us what it is. And Paul has already described and laid out the pattern of this world right at the beginning of this letter. Uh, Come back with me to chapter 1, if you will, if you've got your Bibles open. Uh, Romans chapter 1, page uh, 1129. And you'll see on on the handout that I've actually written down the pattern of this world. I've summarized it. But let me show you from chapter 1, from the verses themselves... 
um, how Paul lays out the pattern of this world, a pattern dragging us away from God. Look at chapter 1, verse, verse 23. We exchange the glory of God for images. Then, verse 23, we worship those images. And then, verse 24, God gives us over to ungodly living. And as we live ungodly lives, the pattern begins again. Verse 25, see it again, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Verse 25, we worship created things. And verse 26, God gives us over to live ungodly lives. And it continues. Verse 28, we don't think it worth retaining knowledge of God, so we worship other things. And verse 28, God gives us over to a depraved mind. And verse 29, we live ungodly lives. That's the pattern of this world. Do you see it? It's a spiral of rejecting God, of living for other gods, and of God giving us over to living, uh, to living ungodly lives. It's as if he takes his restraining hand upon us eventually, off us. He's restraining us to live as we should and then he takes his hand away. Now haven't we seen the pattern, that, that pattern being worked out in Britain over these last 30, 40, 50 years? As a nation we've given up on the knowledge of God. Church attendance has declined rapidly. And as a result we've turned to other things to worship. Sport, leisure, sex, travel, money, career. And as we turn to those other things, God has taken his restraining hand off our society, he has handed us over and we have plunged into ungodly living, misusing sex and drink and relationships and wealth and every good gift that he gives us, we misuse it. And society is gradually fragmenting. Don't you, don't you see that? Of course you do. And I don't think we've seen the last of it. I get really scared for my children, wondering what, the, what world they're going to be living in. It's going to be very hard for them to stand up as Christians in a world that is so non-Christian. But you see, that's the pattern of this world. As soon as we reject God, we are going into a spiral downwards of serving other things, of him handing us over, and of us living ungodly lives. And the point is this, that is the pattern that we will naturally revert to. Because we are sinful people. We are just like the world. Now before we return to chapter 12, note it all begins with the mind. Look at the language of the mind in Romans 1. Chapter 1, verse 21. Our thinking becomes futile. Verse 21. They claim to be wise. See the language of the mind? They claim to be wise but became fools. Verse 25. They exchanged the truth, which goes on in the mind, they exchanged truth for a lie. And very clearly in verse 28, they didn't think it worth retaining the knowledge of God. See, it all begins with the mind. And that's why, as we turn back to chapter 12 and verse 2, that's why Paul says in verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If I'm going to break free from this pattern, it begins with my mind. That's why the Bible is so important to the Christian. God addresses the mind because in addressing the mind I have a fighting chance of living as I should. See, the sermon on a Sunday and the Bible study in the small group is not about mere intellectualism, if it's about intellectualism at all. We study because when my mind is convinced my lifestyle will follow. It's true in every area of life. Getting fit begins in the mind. This time last year I had to be convinced that I ought to get fit. 
Once I had it in my mind to do it, I did it. It wasn't easy, but I can guarantee that I wouldn't have kept it up were I not convinced it was a good thing to do. That's why God addresses the mind and that's why it's, it's desperate meeting Christians who as the years have passed by have become bored with the Bible. Well, they'd never put it like that. But it's clear they're not excited by the word of God anymore. They just want the preacher to tell them what to do. That They only listen to the application. Now, never mind all the other stuff, just tell us how to live. Well, it doesn't work like that. I can tell you how to live, you won't do it. You've got to be convinced in your mind. We get people who complain it's all too intellectual and academic. Now listen to the danger. If you do not get your thinking right, you will not get your living right. The sermon in the Bible study is not about intellectualism. I'm not an intellectual or an academic, but I do need to put my mind in gear and use my mind and train my mind to think God's thoughts after him. And then I have a fighting chance of living as I should Verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's why last November I launched the Essential Christian Library. It might seem a bit twee, but it's very serious. We're trying to get people to read good Christian books, and there are a load of rubbish Christian books out there, to read good Christian books so we think the right thoughts, so we live the right life. That's why we make the sermon and the Bible study central to all that we do at Forward so that we will live to please God. That is worship, you see. What we're doing now is worship. It's not as if only when the band come up to play we're worshipping. We are worshipping now, I hope. Well, if you and I are going to be free from the downward pattern of this world and it is a a spiralling pattern that grabs hold of us and if we're going to give our bodies as living sacrifices and boy, is that going to be hard to do and if we're going to be transformed into consistent worshippers in every area of life then it begins with having our minds renewed. Let me let uh, John Piper have the last word. I've been reading these uh, meditations uh, in my in my uh, quiet times each morning, and I read this one just a couple of days ago. The reason Christians have always planted schools where they have planted churches is because we are people of the book. It is true that the book will never have its proper effect without prayer and the Holy Spirit. It is not a textbook to be debated. It's a fountain for spiritual thirst and food for the soul. It's a revelation of God, a living power, and a two-edged sword. He goes on and says this, We need an education that puts the highest premium under God on knowing the meaning of God's book and growing in the abilities that will unlock its riches for a lifetime. It would be better, he says, to starve for lack of food than to fail to grasp the meaning of the book of Romans. That's quite a a comment, isn't it? I wonder if we believe it. A renewed mind will lead to a transformed life, verse 2. Now that, I think, is a resolution worth making for 2008, don't you? Let's pray together.